This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. This is the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm Adam Wheeler and taking over hosting duties this week as Steve English is attending the Mark VDS Superbike team launch. It's cool to be joined by a man who makes pink headphones look like a tasteful fashion accessory. Our podcast sage, even though he's a vegetarian, Mr. David Emmett. I'd just like to point out that sage is actually a herb, so it's perfectly fine for me to eat lots of sage. I, uh, in fact, we have a, a few varieties in the garden, so there you go. Perfectly. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> also, a person who can name every championship finish by Norwich Abbey, but who once forgot to pack his underwear for the Valencian Grand Prix, the esteemed Neil Morrison. Our final musketeer on this show is a person with many hats in the wardrobe, TV pundit and expert, former racer in at least five high-profile series, an academy director and Motor 3 team principal and an all-round good egg. Welcome, Michael Laverty. Thank you very much, Adam. Nice to see you, Neil, David, and Happy New Year to everyone. Before we start, our thanks, as always, to Renfall for their support. They support the best motocross and uh, supercross teams in the business. There's also a big complement of street accessories. Just watch Kawasaki Racing Team and World SBK this year to see and know the difference Renfall can make. We also have some KTM backing for the podcast. 2024 is the 70th anniversary for the company and the 30th anniversary for the KTM Duke lineup. 125s, 390s, 690s, 790s, 890s, 990s, and the Super Duke, the whole lot. Um, has anybody on this podcast ridden a KTM apart from me? I rode a 990 Super Adventure a very long time ago, and it was an enormously fun bike. Um, uh, I, I also noticed that you skipped out on the 1190, the 1090, 1190, 1290, and now 1390 uh, uh, of the uh, of the KTM range. I was but they're not Duke's day. They're Super Adventures. Uh, no, no, no. The thirty ninety is a Super Duke. I, I think you'll find. I would know because I've been watching videos of it on the on the YouTube's. Okay, Michael. We know you've got a, um, an association with Honda, so maybe you don't want to say too much, particularly when it comes to Moto Three. But have you ever ridden, ever ridden a KTM? <laughs> uh, lots of the off road bikes, never on road. So um, yeah, I've got uh, a three hundred enduro upstairs for a bit of play riding on. I've always enjoyed the KTM off road line up and their two stroke range is, is top notch so yeah still and I, I never got the opportunity other than doing some test riding with their wp team but that was on actually a yamaha r1 but it was linked to ktm at the time so i've never actually rode a ktm uh on road bike but yeah one day yeah the two strokes tpis good bikes um in general the the dukes light bikes with massive amounts of torque that leave you grinning like a lecherous grandfather in a pilates class so uh, check them out if you can KTMs. Um, firstly, updates. I'm off to Austria tomorrow to actually help KTM with their MotoGP team launch videos. Uh, five or well, minus, I should say, minus five degree temperatures coming up. So not going to be too pleasant. And then the Ducati launch in Italy and finally Trackhouse the week after that in Los Angeles. Uh, Dave, you're getting ready for the first team launch of the preseason, which is going to be Grissini. But it seems that they've had their thunder stolen somewhat uh, by uh, a Spanish lager, Australia Galicia and the Marquez brothers kind of spilling the beans ahead of time. 
Yeah, well, someone's got to pay the bills, don't they? So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously Mark said last year um, that it wasn't true that he wasn't going to get uh, paid for a racing in 2024. Uh, he didn't actually specify that it would be Grassini paying uh, paying him a salary. But, yeah, Estrella Galicia is one of his personal sponsors. There's a few of them. Uh, Estrella Galicia, uh, Allianz Insurance, I think. Uh, also Red Bull. He's a massive Red Bull um uh, uh, athletes. So it's going to be very interesting to see how much Red Bull branding there is, uh, both on his leathers and on uh, on the bike itself. So, uh, because that's the other thing, we also know that Red Bull has gone from uh, Repsol Honda, of course. Uh, Neil, there's only a few days before Madonna di Campiglio, the Ducati launch, um, where we'll be meeting up and doing the podcast. Uh, are you half marathon training? What have you been up to? Uh, a little bit of that, yes. I'm actually going to the Grassini launch as well, Ad. So I'll be joining our friend Dave uh, over in Riccioni on Friday, Saturday, I think it is. And then, uh, yeah, we're driving up together to the uh, to the Dolomite Mountains on Sunday. So, yeah, a couple of fun days ahead, a couple of launches, a few free dinners all being well as well. Uh, Michael, I don't know where to start. Um, you know, what about the team, MLF Racing for 2024? I can imagine it's been a busy time with emails, administration, just trying to get things sorted. Yeah, pretty much. That's the winter for uh, life as a team owner, which I never quite realised just how much the team boss has to do. Um, just getting everything in place with, with sponsors. Uh, the admin side is one thing, getting staff uh, locked down, getting everyone's contracts signed, then more importantly, getting the sponsors in place, making sure everyone's happy, sorting out the branding. Um, we're changing all trucks and hospitality units and then honda bringing out a new bike so yeah a massive overhaul of her of her kit and fleet were expanded in junior gp to run the british talent team alongside dorna so that requires more staff and more bikes and more kit and also in british talent cup we've gone from uh, three riders last year to six next year so yeah it's just never ending making sure you've got everything in place that you need all the material the budget most importantly unfortunately we lost vision track at the end of last season so we don't have a title sponsor so at the moment i'm working hard to try and replace vision track at the moment it's the team's going to be called m lab racing until we find a, a suitable replacement for vision track so yeah not not easy when you lose your title sponsor but it is what it is it's the current financial climate and it's not easy to find a replacement when we're Sort of, even though we're in a World Championship Series, we're definitely more angled towards the UK market, having all British riders. But, um, but yeah, we're it's it's trucking along. I've got a good business partner in the team now. It takes a bit of load off my shoulders. Takes a bit of the financial load off as well. And we're um we're we're looking good for the season ahead. And looking forward to seeing what Honda brings for the twenty twenty four machine. It looks like everything's changed which we needed a little bit of a step up to compete with ktms and so yeah a lot of um, a lot of differences with the 2024 package so look forward to seeing it on track in in portugal in mid-feb michael you mentioned how difficult it is to get sponsorship uh, what, what kind of is the process for you could you shed some light onto you know for our listeners is it a case of leaning heavily on the contact book can you work with an agency uh, i mean how where do you even begin to try and get you know a sizable check to be able to go racing in MotoGP for a full season yeah, I've been fortunate in uh, contacts to this point, but now I am actually engaging with uh, an agency. So I've got actually some meetings this week to try and get some assistance. I put together um, sponsor proposals and packs and try and put a presentation and um, that the design side of that coming up with uh, visuals and, and proposals takes a lot of time. So you're, you might produce 20 or 30 of them and, and maybe only get one if you're lucky and it may only be for a secondary sponsor or a smaller sponsor. A lot of the companies in the UK 
they want to go to BSB, it's easy to send their clients to a British Superbike race and they'll get the VIP hospitality and have um, have an easy weekend. It's harder to get people who want to, or who have um, a, a kind of a global client base or European, at least they can send their clients to get the hospitality, have the, the weekend in the MotoGP paddock. So it, I'm finding more people are interested in doing that. Like Lucio Cecchinello's done for years, smaller packages, maybe one event deals, send, um, send their, their customers or their clients. So I'm trying to attract those. It's always easier if you can attract the, the big title sponsor because if you have 10 secondary sponsors, you have to give each of those the same face time, the same uh, commitment. Whereas if you've got one, it's more or less the same process, but for a much bigger branding, but you, you only have one uh, senior title sponsor to look after. So yeah, at the moment, I'm just uh, still exercising the contact book, the contacts I've made over the years, but trying to, to branch out a little bit. It's like I mentioned earlier, it is difficult to stay in the, the British track completely. I did have options which would have made my life easier to choose a rider from a different nationality and it brought a sponsorship package with it so it would have been easier but I wanted to stay the, the course. It's probably going to be that I'm not always able to stay that way just judging by how tough it's been this winter so I may have to diversify but as long as I keep one British rider, let's say in Moto3 Grand Prix each, each year it keeps that uh, alive but I may have to, to look two other uh, avenue streams um, when it comes to nationalities because it changes your conversations with sponsors quite a lot. Um, uh, Michael, how does the sort of the, the changing cha- calendar, the expanding calendar, how does that affect your sort of searching for, for, for sponsorship? Because obviously, you know, the broader we go and the bigger we go, the uh, sort of the broader the audience, but that also you know, companies tend to walk, uh, tend to operate in, in markets uh, and they're really particularly interested in serving a particular market. And uh, sort of the, the more global you get, it's almost like you get bigger, there, there are bigger parties interested, but more, but fewer of them. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, the, the Asian market's still relatively untapped, as is good to India last year, has definitely potentially opened some doors for the future. I've had a lot of contact with Indian companies and riders that want to come and race in junior GP. Um, so they're... There is um, potential there to open doors for the future. I know there's um, there's untapped markets that we aren't really getting into, but it's it's not easy. It's finding those contacts. It's doing the the networking when you're in those countries. I think it will it'll definitely pay off long term. The the broader we go, but at the same time, it makes it harder to get mechanics and staff on board over twenty two rounds because now all of a sudden you're asking a lot more of them. Um, it's not not easy right now. So. I had some mechanics that worked in both my junior GP and GP team last year. and They're all a little bit like, no, nah, that's too much to do 22 rounds, then come back and do a seven round junior GP plus a couple of tests. So you don't have much, much of a home life. But I think, I don't think we'll ever end up, I don't think we'll have the budgets to be like Formula One and have two teams, but it's almost heading that way. But, um, but yeah, those, those markets, I think the MotoGP teams will tap into those first and then hopefully the smaller teams in Moto2 and Moto3 can pick up a few uh, smaller deals off the back of that, but it is, um, it, it should work out. Michael, I'm just curious, you've now had two full seasons as a team owner in the World Championship in Moto3. And, uh, you know, there's been some really, there's been some good moments, some difficult moments as well. I would just like to know over those two years, you know, what's kind of the biggest thing that you've learned uh, in your current position that you can kind of take forward into the, the next couple of years? Yeah, it's been interesting. It's been massively different than I had anticipated. I, I've learned a lot in those two years. Still not, I've never been good at managing people. I had Taylor McKenzie in there as my team manager. I've, it's hard being everyone's uh, friend. So whether it's um, writers, uh, 
staff, uh, mechanics, parents, they're handling everyone is a little bit difficult. You can, you're never going to please everyone. And I, I've, I've struggled with that side of it uh, because you have to give some bad news at, at times. You can't, you can't uh, please everyone. But um, in general, it's, it's been good. I've got to say the world championship is, is good in the support we get from Erda. I still manage a lot of the, the um, behind the scenes with the, the travel and everything, but Erda do make our life easy, organizing all our freight and shipping and the, the, the carnies and the work that goes on there, the the Erda guys have been such a, a good support. As of Dorna, to be fair, they they put a lot behind the, the teams assisting us to to travel around the the globe in, in twenty two races. It's not easy, but um, but yeah, overall, I've I've enjoyed the process. Year one was really tough because I had um I had to stretch a budget to uh quite, to its absolute limit. So I was doing a lot of jobs myself that I knew I could do. So it just meant I was burning the candle at both ends. I don't think I could have kept doing that year on year. So last year I brought in a, a business partner and that took um, a lot of load off my shoulders and it meant I've got a bit of my own life back. And then I'm hoping to to grow that again uh, for the third season. So dele- learn to delegate a little bit more, have more budget on hand that you can employ people to do jobs that I had to plug um, plug holes with. Um, but yeah, the the... I don't think we underestimated the the task, but coming up into World Championship, I know Scott and Josh both came from Junior GP, but because we're a brand new team, unfortunately the Honda was at a little bit of a disadvantage against the KTM's, especially over the uh, last season, twenty twenty two. At times, it was a little bit closer. Weirdly, the Honda won the championship with Leopard, but when you look at the rest of the Hondas, they're that little bit below the KTM's in general performance. So keeping the riders' um, morale up because they felt like they were on a heading to nothing at times, even though Scott had some really good results, as did Josh towards the end of 2023 before, unfortunately, got hurt in Qatar. He was having such a such a strong performance week on week. He was he was improving. He was getting up into the top 10 in practice and qualifying sessions and, yeah, really getting chipping down those those last few tenths. So, yeah, it's been uh, been really uh, pleasing to see the progress on, on Josh's side and frustrating for Scott because he started last season so strong and then it sort of, tapered off a little bit towards the end of the year but he's also picked up an injury in Valencia but hopefully both will be back to full fitness um, for when we roll out on track in, in uh, Portugal in February but uh, yeah both both riders having a bit of a tough winter to be fair. Yeah are you able to give our, our listeners a wee bit of an idea Michael just how, how busy you have been over the last couple of years because I feel every time that I've bumped into you in a MotoGP paddock you're telling me that you've just come from a CEV round or maybe it's a round in the BSB championship and it seems like you're just like always always on the move um, you said you're obviously trying to delegate that a little bit better but back in 2022 I mean how many weekends basically were you working a year and you know will that be will that be drastically reduced in, in 2024? Um, a little bit, not as uh, I'll still keep my finger on the pulse with all three teams. But in 2022, as I said, I was uh, mainly in junior GP. We had enough budget in the Grand Prix team from the get go that we could employ people for every role, having Taylor in there as team manager, having um, everything rolling without me in the pit box. But for junior GP, I had to. I was driving the truck and managing the parts and managing the pit box, and so I was basically getting back from a GP uh, doing my. At then it was T. BT Sport, but with TNT Sport, so I do my, my work as a pundit and commentator. Then Monday or Tuesday, fly to the workshop in Barcelona, drive whether it was Estoril or Portugal, drive the truck down there, then help set up, and then work through the the weekend, then get it back to the workshop, and then fly on to the next race. So in between that, you're 
I've still was bookkeeping, so I was getting all the receipts off every member of, of staff, booking all the travel, um, doing the accounts, and trying to even initially setting it all up was was hard because um, it Brexit really hurt us as a as a UK based team. Luckily, I have an Irish passport and I set up an, an Irish company, which has made life easier. To be honest, that we don't need carnets for everything when we race in Europe. So um, I did put some good. Uh, I spoke to Paul Denning and spoke to Sean Muir, who were both going through the similar scenario. So I got some good direction. We set up our, our GP workshop in Barcelona and um, and run from an EU company. We do have a UK company as well, but it just made life easier in general. So yeah, it's been 2022 was mental because I was doing so much. And then I just didn't have much time. My little boy was um, was born at the end of uh, 2021. So in his first year of life, I wasn't really around a lot. So last year, I wanted to be home more. I was still traveling a lot, but I wasn't going to every single junior GP. So I, um, Macaulay Webb, who was uh, chief mechanic for Josh, had come to work with me in junior GP. And I identified that he was quite good in terms of the organization and the management logistics using his own initiative, just doing things without me having to tell him. So in the end, he's become my team manager and team coordinator down there. So I could, at the end of last season, I could just stay home and watch on the on the TV, which was good, and, and trust Macaulay and the boys to, to run it. So he will, he'll stop traveling GPs next year and solely focus on the junior GP team. So he's going to run that. It meant that I had to find a good uh, chief mechanic to replace him in, in Grand Prix. But yeah, just finding those key people makes your life a lot easier so uh, in the British Talent Cup team now I've got um, Jordan Pritchard and Nathan Smith and basically they can run everything I don't have to they sign off on spend with me and that's about it I don't really have to do too much now with that team I do want to pop in and make sure everything's going right which is two three races a year but it's um, when you're doing 22 GPs uh, three BSBs and say three or four CEVs you don't have many weekends left if you want to have January and December at home um, Michael, I passed by once in the beginning. I have to say your cooking in the hospitality wasn't the best. So I really hope you've managed to uh, get someone else on that front, um, in the last year or two, but, uh, on a serious note, um, I appreciate you maybe have some, uh, you know, you have to tackle this diplomatically, but tell me about the relationship or ask about the relationship with Honda, because I think for most Moto3 fans watching last year, you know, and you said yourself, you alluded to the fact that it was a little bit of a hiding to nothing. It wasn't quite the bike to have, even though it won the world championship, of course, with Jama Masia. But, you know, I mean, are they going to give you more support next year? Is there going to be a little bit more in terms of resources? Do you think the package is going to be more competitive or is it just one of those those compromise things where you get a level of support and you just really have to make the most of it? Yeah, in a way, it is frustrating. But at the same time, we're all essentially in the same boat. So, um you just got to commend Leopard. They do a slightly better job than the rest of the Honda teams. I think a lot of that's they've got good experienced people in there, but also they've got the biggest budget to employ them, to develop, to to spend time in the wind tunnel because it is it literally is marginal gains to steal David Brailsford's uh, uh, line. But the, the smallest things make the biggest difference in Moto3. So Honda give a good package. Unfortunately, you're, well, not unfortunately, it's good because budget-wise it's locked over three years. So we've bought all new bikes for 2024. But they, you'll just upgrade those for the next couple of years. I say upgrade them. You do. Everyone thinks you buy a, a bike as a whole. You really don't. You build. You build it in parts. It's the same when you speak to the MotoGP teams. There's never actually a whole bike. It's a new frame. It just constantly evolves. New engine, new wiring limb, new ECU. You change the parts all the time. So it's never the same bike from the beginning to the end of the year. But what um, the the new rules do so well is the three year technical freeze means that you're um, you're buying. You know you can 
stock up early on because you'll be using that same material. Um, when it comes to the, the parts you get, you've got the exact same engines, the exact same uh, electronics package and ECU, the exact same exhaust, even suspension tires it's all identical so we have the same material as all the other Honda teams it just seemed like ktm somehow they have a, a test team with fram vasquez they're they're working on the peripheries which you can change there are certain parts that you can change and then there are homologated parts that you're not allowed to adjust but somehow they were eking out a little bit year on year when in theory it, it should have remained uh, fairly stagnant in terms of development over the, the three-year period that's the plan for the technical freeze but didn't quite work out so it meant by year three ktm had found enough for every team across the the board and they it just seemed like they had a little bit of an advantage so it was hard keeping our riders motivated but then it, you, you would arrive at a circuit in the honda chassis because it always turned good and the riders liked it you'd think oh the They've got something this weekend, but it's just hard in race trim because you can't use the flow in Moto3. Everyone's slipstreaming, passing, bulking each other in the corners, and the KTMs can fight better because they can stop and go a little bit easier. So they, where Honda was strong, they couldn't really use that strength as often. But Jamma Messiah did a great job to win the championship. You know, Obviously, there was the, the Qatar incident that sort of tainted it a little bit, but how he rode in the races around the, the second half of the season, he was in my opinion, head and shoulders above at times. I know Ayumu took the fight to him really good, but I think Jama was the complete package and was getting the most out of his bike, even though Leopard did have a bit more top speed than the rest of the Honda teams. Yeah, um, where is that coming from? Because, I mean, they, um, well, I mean, two things. First of all, in, in Moto3, I mean, my criticism of Moto3 is always that so much of it... Um, it's it's quite hard for a rider to make a difference because because of the importance of slipstreaming. Uh, you know, slow riders can keep up because of the slipstream uh, because of slipstreaming. You know, you could always like make a and make a pass. Um, uh, but also, the, it becomes really important the, the the package around it. You know, the the the, the mechanics, the, the the even like the data guys and all the rest of it. The, the finding that little bit of you know that, that extra hundredth in the case of Motor Three is it, it just becomes really really important. Yeah, it, it's frustrating for for me um, now as a as a, a team boss looking at it and feeling frustrated because previously. A, I had the same feeling when I was helping John McPhee in the class and I, I felt he was a better rider than he was able to show at times. And it is because sometimes the bravest rider, the one who's not scared to push the other rider off the track, is the one who comes to the fore. And David Munoz is a perfect example. He's a quality rider, but sometimes it's just purely his aggression that makes the result happen. And he's not scared to make some enemies out there. So, um, yeah, there's there's times whenever it is uh, the, the lap times can be two seconds a lap slower throughout the race and it's just staying in a bunch because of the, the slipstream, the overtakes, not allowing the, a rider to get his head down and just, uh, just work in a rhythm. It, you know, there's been years when you could do that, but predominantly 125 and Moto3 has always been a group battle. But the way the class has evolved with the young kids coming up, um, obviously, now they're 18 years old, but with, even when they were 16 years old, they were just ultra aggressive coming in from junior GP, sticking up the inside, not scared, didn't realize the danger they were putting themselves in. You know, some of the weaving we've seen down straights and uh, I'm glad to see it's tidied up a little bit last season, but it still scares me at times watching them. And it's, um, yeah, it's a different way of racing. And uh, I think Jamma Masia said it, he wanted to get out of the class. He was just, he was over Moto3 because of the, the tactics and how you ride and how the races evolve. 
Michael, um, you mentioned, obviously, Josh was uh, kind of coming into his own towards the end of last year before that injury in, in Qatar that he sustained. With Scott, um, I remember back in, in pre-season, I think he topped one of the tests in Jerez and uh, I spoke to him at the final pre-season test and both he and the team were thinking maybe, you know, he could be up there fighting regularly in the top 10 and he did have some some really good weekends, but we did see it maybe tail off a little bit towards the end. I mean, we, we know that Scott's super talented, but didn't quite work out as I think I think everyone imagined last year. I mean, are you able to kind of shed some light on, on what happened there? Yeah, difficult to exactly put the finger on it because, as you said, he was super fast at the start of the season, did top the Hareth preseason test um, fast. In, in most tests and qualifying sessions, he's definitely one of those riders who falls far off the ultra-aggressive nature of the Moto3 racing. So, um he could he could do a lap time if it was a, if it was a time trial event he'd have been top five top ten a lot more frequently but being able to position himself in the races was difficult in Argentina almost got the podium in the wet he was super strong in the wet which shows the class of his his skill and his feeling his level as a rider but it's um, somehow managing to uh, say make his way through the pack has been difficult whether it is the he is a little bit taller, he's he's skinny, he's lean, he works hard to stay um, to the weight limit, but he doesn't have the ability to pass on the straights, so he can hang in the slipstream. But with the with that scenario where you're never able to draft alongside, you've always got people swarming you, and it does it, it sometimes is hard to go forward in the group. But there obviously he's not Scott's not one of those ultra aggressive riders who is dive bombing on the brakes, but maybe it it takes a little bit more of that to to get the the end result that he needs because he's definitely got the speed and the talent. And I think he just got um you know the the crash in India was big. He had a few a few big ones and maybe his confidence was just knocked a little bit towards the end of the season. But the speed was still there. It was just an unfortunate end and then getting getting hurt in Valencia definitely not how he wanted to finish it. But yeah, we fully believe in Scott and you know he, he can he, he scored points, he can front row, he can fight for um for pole position in the wet every time, can fight for podiums in the wet, um, and he's fast enough in the drive. We're hoping that the package from Honda does give us a little bit of a step up in performance for 2024 that allows him to to kind of develop and, and show us what he's capable of week in, week out. What's what's the emotion around running the team, Michael? Is it something where you have a great deal of pride, but then do you also feel the responsibility? Because, I mean, even your own personal experience and, and that of your brother as well, I mean, you made big compromises and, and took risks to come to World Championship Racing. And now we look, you know, the, the, the theme of British riders in GP is always talked about and it has been for the last few years, but you, you're providing a platform for that to exist and, and to get better. I mean, I imagine it's, it's quite a responsibility to bear. It's, <laughs> you know, while you're trying to make the numbers happen each year to go racing, it, there's almost like a necessity for it, you know? Yeah, that the compromise you talk about still happens and I, it frustrates me because I want to give, I want to just have enough budget that all we focus on is performance, but you have to, you have to balance the books. You have to cut the cloth to suit. And we have a, a decent budget, but when you're trying to compete with the likes of Leopard, it's you're not in the in there uh, in the same level at all so yeah like i say it is hard to get enough budget that you're you can spend the time in the wind tunnel that you can um develop the the last little bit so it, you know it, it's it's not huge because when you go to the wind tunnel you can't change your bodywork as as drastically as say in motor gp but you can make little tweaks with um with how everything's positioned with how the rider sits on the bike with how much um excess material is on their suit all those little bits make a, a difference in in motor three and it is at the end of the day it's it's budgetary as in how far we can push so we're always i, I think we're we're 
um, doing a good job, but we're always trying to look uh, inwards as well because uh, some sometimes you blame the writers, sometimes the writers blame the team, but it's we're a team together, so we both accept our shortcomings and we try and and, um, and push forth. So it is, uh, yeah, hard for me as a writer whenever I know what it's like for for Scott, for Josh, when they're frustrated, they're feeling like their their bikes aren't as fast as some of the others. Where our crew are giving them the the best tools that they can, and it, it still feels like you're you're on a little bit little bit of a hiding which is it's hard to put your finger on why because like i explained earlier everything is identical engines electronics exhaust there's not a lot we can do other than wind tunnel really um slightly lighter parts or or try and stay on the on the weight limit um that is the big thing in in moto 3 is getting down to the weight limit and staying on it comfortably Michael, just uh, two things about next year. I mean, first of all, um, we've had one preseason test at the uh, at Valencia at the end of last year. Um, the new Honda, are we expecting something that's going to be radically different from what you had before? And then also, I guess we've got Pirelli coming in as the uh, the sole tire supplier taking over from Dunlop. Do you envisage a kind of massive shift in how things kind of play out in, in, in Moto3 or, or do you think it will kind of be as it was? No, I'm hoping that the Pirelli change will make some. I know in Moto Two, I feel it'll make a drastic shift to how the races are, but I think it'll affect uh, the tire preservation is going to become a thing in Moto Three, which it hasn't typically been. Dunlops have been generally always had an option that will last distance without having to manage. I think it will change also the the tactics throughout a practice session because the tire drop that Pirelli has. It, it's not a drop because it still performs really good, but it's got a three lap window that typically is. You've you've got um, a good percentage improvement, so you're not going to have the the luxury of just going for it and um and, and hanging about and waiting for a tow. You're going to have to go out of the pit box and, and push on right from the the get go. So yeah, I think that's that's going to be the biggest thing, the tire side of things. I do think the improvements from Honda with the they've got new engine. Um, that's that's one of the things to try and get that little bit of punch off the turns to match the, the KTM, but they've changed a lot. Visually, it's not going to look massively different, but they've changed a lot of um, a lot of the parts in the bike, so I think it's going to make a big step. Just one thing about the uh, about the change to Pirellis, because that really is an interesting thing. Also, especially in Moto2, I think you're going to see a big difference. But um, you say... The because you've got the drop in uh, in tyres, do you think that's going to change the way that the racing develops? Do you think we'll see less slipstreaming? Do you think it'll be harder to actually stick with someone? I hope so. I, I do think uh, the the uh, tyre management is going to become a thing that you have to really think about it. So races will be decided. At, the other side of it is the ability with a Pirelli to really activate the tyre straight off as soon as the lights go out so you can push so hard through the first set of corners and maybe put half a second in if you're brave. So being able to, to drop the hammer from the, the get-go means front row, uh, front row of the grid is going to be so important because you can get away. The I think they will change the dynamic. I hope it changes the slipstream effect that it is riders being able to use their tyre in those early laps to get away, make a, make a difference. I know the smaller tire isn't the same as the motor two or the you know it's going to have um, a bit more of a consistency because you're not dealing with the same level of horsepower same loads same weights into the tire it doesn't drop it doesn't um, have such an issue with the heat so I, I think it's going to be a bit more level a bit more like the Dunlop feel but it will it'll certainly change the character 
Before we move on, a reminder that our friends at Fly Racing are back in the Paddock Pass podcast in 2024. There's a range of motorcycling gear on the website, flyracing.com, and not only Exxon off-road products like the Evo DST with BOA Custom Fit, but the Zone Pro goggles and, of course, the superlative Formula Helmet, which is actually the lid that I use. I've tried Arai, Shoei, Laser, Fox, uh, and the Formula is the best I've had for comfort, ventilation, and, of course, the AIS system with Rion Tech and Conehead EPS. Uh, great stuff. Have a look at flyracing.com for more. Michael, we want you to change your cap now uh, from, you know, you know much more than us about Grand Prix racing. And uh, last week on the Paddock Pass podcast, we did um, a show pretty much about the main stories going into 2024. Uh, the first of which was Mark Marquez, a title contender, a contender or a man who's going to be sort of fucking things up slightly. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your opinion? <laughs> Definite title contender. I, I've always been one of the, the guys to, to, to champion Mark's raw speed and his ability and what he can do. Obviously, coming off, was it four seasons now of injury, pretty much since um, his title winning season in 2019 was phenomenal. And I do think he's still got that race head. Now he's on the best bike. As a as a Ducati runner, you got to you got to look at him and say, he's going to be a, a title contender. He's going to really shift the dynamic. Obviously, we... We've seen it becoming a fight between Peko and Jorge. I think that now Mark in there just changes everything. So he's um, he's ultra-aggressive. Obviously, Alex showed what was uh, possible for, for Mark whenever he made the transition, and now Mark's going to follow suit. So he's learned how to ride the Ducati. I thought watching him at Valencia at the test was was just different because he wasn't over the limit, and he was still super fast within 10 laps. He was in control. He wasn't the, the mark that you come to expect, pushing the front, fighting it sideways loose. He just looked like he, he was trying to understand the bike, and he was super fast. So uh, I think everyone needs to be worried because, you know, his his raw speed is, is he's probably, I'd say Casey Stoner's maybe the only one that we've ever seen that has that that element of being able to ride a bike at 100% and find its absolute limits within a few laps. He's, he's unparalleled at the moment in, in MotoGP, I believe. I think there's some really talented and fast riders, but just Mark has that special edge that we, once in a generation, raw speed. and uh, We've seen it twice in a generation with Casey as well, but I think, I've no doubt, he's going to be a, a real, as long as he stays injury-free, he there's a good chance he'll be champion at the end. Uh, obviously you're the only one of us who's ridden a MotoGP bike so you actually know the process of switching bikes of, of changing bikes because that's the one thing that everyone talks about um in terms of Mark is you know can he switch and also you know we're going to get into silly season we're going to see sort of Fabio Quattararo maybe shopping himself around Jorge Martin shopping himself around uh, different riders looking at different bikes uh, how how easy is it to 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 change brands to change to a different bike because as you say i mean like you could see i I had the same with it was really interesting watching mark especially those first few laps because he was going into turn one and looking to see where his braking marker was but he was choosing turn one because you can run on at turn one it's not an issue do you know what i mean and he you know he ran wide i think the first two three laps he, he was really wide and then he was a little bit less wide and then he made it and then he worked moved on to the next sort of thing so it was really interesting to actually watch him sort of work through that but but the process of adapting, how easy is it to adapt? Do you need to be a special rider to adapt? Or, uh, you know, ha- ha- how does it work? It's different depending on the package you're getting onto. So because he's jumping on Ducati, which has got so much data for it, they can dial it in to his request almost from the off. So I, I think 
Uh, Luca Barini has the flip side going to a bike that needs development work. So when you're jumping on a package that doesn't have a clear direction of how it works best, and you're trying to to find your feet with it, that takes some time. You have to engineer a package to work for your riding style. But I think Ducati at the moment have got such a good base that Mark wanted to adapt to it. So he didn't adjust much from the outside. Side. It didn't look like he was changing too much. He was learning how the bike worked. Obviously, you look at Digi at the end of the year went his own direction in terms of chassis setup and found something even better for him. I think Mark will get his teeth into that when he gets to, to Malaysia. But knowing that you've got such a good base to work from, a bike that stops, that turns, doesn't have to be overridden. Its main advantage is accelerating off the corner. It's, it's so stable, so solid. It doesn't look like a MotoGP bike. It doesn't pump. It doesn't move. Um, it's planted. So he was, he was almost just taking a step back from his 100%, which he said he was going to do on the Honda last year. So I think he got used to not riding over the limit all the time. So he was back just within himself a little bit, learning the bike, letting it do the work. So I don't think that, obviously, it can be tough to, to change manufacturer if the bike isn't working. But the change that Mark's making to the best bike on the grid, I think will be relatively smooth because it's such a good package right now. So I, I think... Uh, if you went to an Aprilia or a KTM, which still is searching for that last little bit to equal Ducati, then it's a different scenario. But jumping on the Ducati, that's the easiest transition right now. It's like when you everyone wanted to be on the Yamaha M1 back in the early 2010, so 2012, 13, 14, around then. Everyone wanted to have the, the Yamaha as the base package. Now everyone's chasing the Ducati as the easier machine to ride. It's never easy, but it's easier. It gives the, the rider a little bit of... Um, a little bit of comfort in, in the knowledge that they've got eight bikes out there that all are competitive and can, can battle for victory. What's your opinion on Jorge Martin? Because, I mean, fantastic rider, of course. The technique is amazing, as we saw from the early days in Moto3. But there always seems to be something kind of going on. There's almost like a chip on the shoulder. And as Dave was talking about with the swaps for 2025, his name's going to be up there. He's going to be talked about, could be distracting. I, I just wonder what your thoughts were. Honestly, I think Jorge's still got uh, margin to improve. He's, um, he, you know, really established himself this season. I believe took that step to becoming a championship contender. His raw speed, his raw uh, talent and aggression was on show. His, his different riding style because of his stature. I, I think he, I do see the psychology in that he's he's had the chip in his shoulder a little bit, especially missing out on the factory ride to Enea ahead of twenty twenty three. That upset him, and it still rumbles on, and still nice entering a season talking about looking to uh, pastures new for 2025 if he doesn't get the, the factory contract he believes he deserves that um that's fine if it's if it's motivating him and it seemed to last year but um but yeah if you focus on that too much it can detract a little bit because he's he's in a good team with good bike good material he does seem to have the backing from the factory Ducati he's got a factory Ducati contract just not in red so he's got everything there that he needs to fight, to fight for a title but um yeah as Mark will prove this year you don't have to be in factory red so there'll be a Grassini Ducati a Pramac Ducati and a factory Ducati all battling for the title they'll have Brad Binder to, to contend with but I do think the 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 a few years ago, you had to be factory Repsol, factory Yamaha to battle for a, a world championship. Right now, that's not the case with how the parity has uh, been created in MotoGP. You've got 22 bikes on the grid and they probably all can win. So, um, so yeah, I think Jorge, it, I don't think it does detract. I think he just he likes to shake things up a little bit. He does create a little bit of um, an aura heading into the weekend where he's, he's not scared to speak his mind. And he does, um, he, he, I think he creates a lot of the, the drama.
Michael, before we let you go, I was just curious because you form part of the team covering the sport for TNT Sports. Uh, you have yourself, you have Alex Lowe's on there sometimes, Silvan Gantoli, uh, Neil Hodgson as well, of course. I just wonder what's the bench racing like between you guys? Is it is it pretty in is it pretty intense or is the you know is it quite sort of um, amiable? No, it's all good. We all bow down to Silvan. He's the he's the current racer, still um, able to jump on a MotoGP bike and go ultra fast. So um, yeah, we don't. We don't do too. We do a bit of um, trash talking, mainly whenever Hodgie does his uh, laps in the BMW. We give him a bit of stick, but uh, <laughs> but in general, Hodgie's still fast when he puts his leathers on. Um, yeah, when Alex Lowe's arrives again, another current rider, so we we bow down to them. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a few years out of my leathers, and even more so now. I'd never really planned to fully uh, stop riding, but because we've been so busy, I've not been able to 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 get on board too many bikes in the last couple of years. But um, but yeah, we have a good good crew there. Such good uh, banter between everyone. Good um, being the, having Gavin Emmett there steering the ship and Susie Perry when we're in, in presentation. So a lot of experience in there, a lot of good banter, good fun. We uh, we enjoy our jobs there with TNT Sports. It's, it's a, a good crew. Michael, thanks ever so much for your time. Best of luck for the season and uh, we look forward to seeing you in Qatar. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Thanks there to Michael Laverty, as we mentioned. Guys, it's team launch time. I mean, MotoGP's been off the map for the for the last few weeks, last two months, I guess you could say. Uh, I guess it's the time also to look at whether we should be delighted or disappointed by the liveries to come up. Uh, Dave, I know, I know you're always very vocal on this subject, but, um, you know, there, there's some kind of restrictions, really. I mean, we never see anything kind of different from Red Bull KTM or Monster Energy Yamaha or Repsol Honda because there are certain constraints of how those motorcycles have to look. Um, whereas Pramac bikes have looked quite nice in the past, but also got awful. So, uh, you know, is there anything, it's still a novelty, isn't it? Seeing what a new motorcycle looks like for the season. Uh, well, cons- well, I mean, you know, you've seen how I dress, you know, how <laughs> much uh, attention I pay to uh, the uh, exterior appearance. I mean, one thing is, uh, at Repsol, obviously, uh, they've lost Red Bull and they're not allowed to run another energy sponsor. So it's going to be very interesting to see what that looks like. Also, I think there was a um, uh, Luca Marini at the uh, whatever it is Valentino Rossi's um, uh, 100 kilometer uh, flat track race. He had a very different uh, helmet all of a sudden because he's not allowed to run any uh, any uh, energy drink sponsorship on it. Um, it would be interesting. To, he might actually have a really good helmet because a lot of those helmets, especially. Uh, I mean, the helmets annoy me more than the bikes because the helmets are so dictated by the amount of money which energy drinks um, uh, sort of throw at them. And that the designs are designed around the energy drink logo, either the Red Bull or the Monster Claw or whatever it might be. So uh, I'm quite interested to see both Joan Mir and um, Luca Marini's helmets. That's going to be interesting. if there's yeah, if there's going to be a, a bigger change, you know, because Repsol are losing Red Bull, and that was not huge, but it was a, a decent chunk of real estate. I think that's going to give them a bit more freedom to uh, to change. But usually, the thing with Repsol Honda is uh, trying to spot liveries is you know is about you have to get your little tape measure out and see that they've moved one line naught points. <laughs> millimeters uh to uh, up or down on the uh, uh on the bike just curious dave um you spoke about the new liveries and potential new uh colors and logos are we going to see a bit more of the monster claw on your dress uh, in your attire in 2024 
Uh, I mean, there would there are those who would say that I'm a monster already. So um, I don't understand why Mr. Sugar Water Man isn't giving me large quantities of money just for uh, existing around the paddock. Neil, in all seriousness, perhaps we can look at maybe Trackhouse or Grassini. I mean, those are going to be the kind of newish forms of livery, colors, design, whatever, because there's not really many other wholesale changes, right? I mean, what those motorcycles look like will be the main novelties in MotoGP for 2024. Yeah, possibly a bit of a change with Repsol Honda. I mean, if Repsol changed, put the logo to uh, half an inch to, to one side, then you would have to say that. I said that in all seriousness, signifies Neil. a major change for them. <laughs> I'm being serious though. But um, yeah, Trackhouse, obviously they'll come in with a, a fresh look, I would say. Um, interesting that the team launched that they had a Stars and Stripes livery um, referencing, I think, Nicky Hayden, the one that he ran at, at Laguna Seca one year. Um, and uh, Grassini, I'm not so sure. I mean, I'm Kind of hopeful that they don't change up too much because I'm, I'm quite a fan of that little sky blue number that they've had for the last couple of years. But um, but yeah, so I think Trackhouse is probably the, the one to, to most keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, Trackhouse is going to be a massive change, but I'm really interested to see what happens with Grassini precisely. As we said earlier on, uh, you know, um, Mark said he's not ra- riding for money and he has a lot of personal sponsors. Uh, will they end up on the bike? You know, who knows? They'll certainly end up on his leathers. And it's going to be really interesting to actually see uh, the leathers that he ends up running and how much uh, how much space of that is left over. There'll be, I presume there'll be someone, they'll, they'll be, you know, selling a, a patch on his little toe for about 10 grand. <laughs> What's the thoughts also on this phase for digital launches versus actually having an event? Uh, it, it does seem, I mean, a digital launch can go on for like an hour online or it can go on for two and a half minutes. It's, uh, I don't know, do we prefer, do we actually, as journalists, prefer going to an event? I mean, you there is obviously the ability to get content, but then otherwise, uh, from what I hear from teams, it's a, a big budget, it's a ball lake, and the return is not necessarily what you would be expecting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's very little, uh, there is very little return from it unless you can find uh, a way to really exploit it. I really think, I like the way that Ducati do it. I'm not just saying that because they're going to put me in a hotel for three nights and feed me. Um, but the, the the way that they're doing it is they're actually part they're, they're actually partnering with uh, uh, the, the ski resort Madonna Madonna di Campiglio and with the I think is it the Trentino region uh, to promote it as a form of tourism. Obviously, they've got a much bigger package that they're launching. They'll be launching their World Superbike team as well, but also I, th- I believe they're also launching motocross uh, a project there as well. So, like. The, that's a really big thing. And then it starts to make a lot of sense to actually do it. And also, I suspect that the fact that they are world champions also makes it a lot easier. But from a lot of teams, there's no, there is very little. I mean, like if you invite journalists, all they're going to do is ask questions and you don't want that. What you want is to be able to present things for your sponsors. Certainly the more low-key Ducati events that I remember from uh, uh that I remember from the past, one of the main things there was getting the sponsors on board, you know, getting the sponsors up so they can get their pictures taken with the bike, with the riders at the launch, you know, looking nice in a suit and all the rest of it. And uh, it it was more about keeping sponsors happy than than anyone else. So, uh, yeah, there, there is a very limited, I mean, in the end, uh, a podium shot 
will get you a lot more traction than sort of 10 minutes of, uh, of a picture of the new livery. Yeah, I think it depends on the kind of situation with the team. I mean, a massive, massive rider change like Mark going to Grissini Ducati, obviously I think that warrants maybe a visit because, well, it should have been the first time that Mark basically uh, spoke on the matter. It, it turns out with the uh, Australia Galicia promotion, it won't be, but um, I still think it'll be worthwhile to go there to hear him speak, to see him speak um, on, on such a such a big thing. Even if it is just one day of testing at Valencia, it is still really quite valuable to, to learn exactly what he felt about that. Um, and then, yeah, as Dave said, if, if a, a manufacturer supporting, or sorry, are um, celebrating a, a massive kind of achievement like what Ducati have done in the past year, and of course launching the new motocross team, then yeah, I think that makes sense to, to, to kind of go to that as well. But generally for team presentations, I mean, if as long as you can kind of get 30 minutes with the team principal, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes with the rider via Zoom, like I think KTM have done or Yamaha have done over previous years uh, with their digital launches, then I think that that's fine, to be honest. Um, yeah, the, 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 the travel isn't necessar- necessary. Yeah, I mean, fans are looking online at the photos and the small videos and that's it. I mean, you can tick a lot of boxes just by doing that. But then, you know, for the, say, 60 to 150 people, they're actually in a room listening to the 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 people you know the kind of representative talks or looking at the images um as we know from ducati last year there was also promotion as you said day for the region uh, for the audi group there was a heavy presence from them um there is a lot of kind of political uh, i don't know requirements i guess around these things but you know the bigger the budget the more investment there is in the racing and of course you know as promoters, Dawn of Sports would like there to be as big as fast as possible. I think if you go to MotoGP.com now, there's actually like a schedule of all the team launches on there. And when there's absolutely nothing in the sport, well, basketball is still so hot. The NFL is incredibly, you know, advanced in its season. Um, you know, the football season is very advanced, coming up to the next forms of the uh, next stages of the Champions League. There's a lot of sport going on, but there's like zero with MotoGP. So, I think team launches. Um, it, it's just a way to keep the content out there. I guess um, I'm trying to sort of put some sort of importance in that. Uh, I mean. Surely that's something you're always going to lose against, you know, like the the, the Super Bowl. You know, we're coming up towards uh, to the Super Bowl. We're in the playoff stage for, for the NFL. I mean, you know, well, apart from the fact that you can't really compare MotoGP and, uh, uh, and the NFL in terms of scale because they're so vastly different. But it's the same thing when there is so much external content. You know, there's a lot of skiing content on now. You know, there's uh, here in Holland, there's loads and loads of stuff on speed skating. You know, can't turn the tea off uh, the TV on without people seeing people skate around um, uh, ice uh, ice rinks. So, is it better to try to compare uh, to compete with that, or is it uh, do you just? Throw race fans a bone every now and again. Well, at least you're out there. I mean, if you're not out there, you're not doing anything, then you're invisible. And I think, you know, that was one of the messages from Dan Rossomondo, uh, who wanted to sort of, you know, get MotoGP more present outside of just the, the 20 or 21, 22 Grand Prix races and, and the tests per year. But uh, I started off by bringing up this topic uh, by mentioning livery. So I wanted to ask your guys, you guys for your personal favorites. Neil and I touched on this. Uh, I'm on a Patreon uh, podcast special recently, and we we're talking about how Suzuki never looked better than when it was in Pepsi colors. I mean, for me, it was always Rothman's Honda. There was something about that blue and white, even though it didn't really change that much. 
uh, it was just, a, I thought, a, an exceptional looking motorcycle. Um, the JPS Norton as well, all black, just apart from this sort of gold and gray or silver trim. I mean, uh, Trevor Nations never looked more menacing around a race circuit than when he was like, you know, clad like some evil knights on a JPS Norton. I just wondered, you know, as, as we see new bikes for 2024, whether you two guys had any, any particular preferences. Uh, I mean, obviously the Bumblebee, the Yamaha Bumblebee, and especially the one that uh, Rossi and Colin Edwards rode at uh, Laguna Seca. I think that was just a fantastic looking motorcycle. Uh, and uh, another personal favourite was, uh, I think it was the uh, Danny Pedrosa's Repsol Honda, the retro Repsol thing that they did uh, at Valencia. I want to say at Valencia, and it would have been maybe 2013, 2012, 2013, 2014, around, around that time. Um, that looked fantastic with the really old, I think it was like a 1950s or a 1960s Repsol logo. I really liked that, and I'd really like them to, to see them bring that one back as well. And in fact, I seem to recall, I think in Valencia, uh, of just driving around between Valencia and Barcelona, uh, there was a bit more of that, old logo at actual Repsol petrol stations. So uh, you sort of wonder if that's not going to, if they're not going to bring that back. I, I would love that. I think it's just fantastic. I can't choose one. I have to, I have to kind of give you a little selection of my favorites, but uh, I think Kevin Schwantz's 88, 89 Pepsi Suzuki. That was sort of like what first attracted me to Kevin Schwantz uh, when I was watching Grand Prix as a, as a wee, uh, Ratbag Kid. Um, also, I think John Kaczynski's 94, Kajiva, All Red, uh, number 11, just looked so, so precise and fabulous, so pretty. Uh, Biaggi's 95, Chesterfield Aprilia, and the 250 class, Silver number one, just, again, pure class. And a bit of a random one, but um, I think it was Toru Okawa, this is a really nerdy one, but uh, Toru Okawa's 97 Aprilia Honda. He was sponsored by Benetton, and it had this delicious color of uh, sky blue. It just looked absolutely amazing. And obviously, the, the kind of the shape of the old Honda 250s as well, just pure race bike. It was uh, it was wonderful. So, yeah, I think those would be my big four. Uh, uh, the other thing we have to point out is that those bikes looked really good as well. Uh, I mean, you know, like obviously aero, um, but the shape of the, especially the Aprilia RS 250 is just I mean, yeah, absolute, absolute porn. Typical, Neil. In a time when we're trying to do better video podcasts, you pick the most obscure motorcycle to try and find an image <laughs> to put over the top. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that one. But uh, other subjects, we'll be reviewing the team launches over the next couple of podcasts. We're going to be on the road, so we'll try to get the, uh, the Paddock Pass podcast online as timely as we can. Uh, other matters, the Fantasy League that will be starting up, of course, in the next couple of months. Iributo, the winner from 2023. We still need to know who you are. DM us on Twitter if you want some prizes. This is your last chance. In the next couple of weeks, we don't hear from you, then uh, we're going to have to be tightening up Dave's wardrobe even more with some free Alpine Stars clobber. So uh, you... I'll be Irabuto if he doesn't get in touch <laughs> or she doesn't get in touch. <laughs> yeah, please don't uh, let the Paddock Pass podcast be a victim to corruption. Uh, that's it pretty much, guys. Thanks to Michael Laverty, to Renthor, to KTM, and to Fly Racing. We'll be back next week from Italy.
episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. Music is provided by the Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.